This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books you've been meaning to read my name is craig my name's andrew and we're back again with another podcast about books and we're gonna talk about them and you're gonna listen and we're all gonna have a good time okay just it's gonna be okay it's gonna be okay no philadelphia sports updates this week uh craig has not bought a second car no and so like no life updates this is the no life updates for us this time. Um, Just making sure everybody's current. I know that you read a book that we're going to talk about, Andrew, but I, I did, did some research. Let me tell you that As I Lay Dying is an American metalcore band from San Diego, California. <laughs> they were Why are they so high up in the Google results for this? <laughs> in 2000 by vocalist Tim, Tim Lambesis, the band's first full lineup, was completed in 2001. Uh, their albums include Beneath the Encasing of Ashes, Frail World, Frail Words Collapse, Shadows Are Security, <laughs> The Powerless Rise, their most recent release, Shaped by Fire, came out in 2019 on the label Nuclear Blast. So well, they sound what, like nice young folks. You want to talk about a book or something? I read the book as a so <laughs> that if the band is based wanted, on. If you, yeah, I read the book based on the band As I Lay Dying by William Faulkner, which was written in what, like 1930? <laughs> Huge metalhead. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. And it's a book about Ooh, it's a it's a book about sad people doing sad stuff. It is. It is a sad and making one. their own circumstances more sad by their own <laughs> ineptness. Digging mostly. their own grave, you might say. Well, digging somebody's grave. Yeah. Um, this was a Patreon recommendation from Asher. Thank you, Asher. Asher wanted us to listen to, not listen to, to cover some Faulkner, kind of dared us to do Sound and the Fury, and then admitted that this one was shorter. So we did this one. We did a shorter one, um, yeah. I also read this if one. You want, if you want to hear some Sound and Fury, make me read the Sound and the Fury. <laughs> that's what I, that's, that's me. That's where I am. I read this book in high school in my 11th grade AP English class. It was with a teacher that I'm sure I've like I don't I've not dropped his name or anything, but I'm sure I've discussed other books we read in that class before, or that you were supposed to read and didn't. Yep, uh huh. I did read this one. I remember it being strange and modernist and daring and having lots of symbols in it. Um, and it's all those things. And I was you know 16 going on 17, and I didn't really. Uh, have a lot of emotional stake in the book other than like passing my class. So I'm certainly in my memories of it are very, um, I need to write a paper about it, uh-huh. but in a way that I liked. And so I'm, I'm, will be interested to get into a, a fresher read from you, find there, out what it's are, like to read it as an adult. <laughs> there are weeks when 
the I have to do a podcast about this and I have to do a paper about this feelings are not as far apart from each other as I would like to be. I would like them to be like this. I'm just going to say up front. I understand the deal with this book. Sure. I understand this deal. I will say that if your book is such a bummer that it makes me really bummered out and sad, like to the exclusion of all other like emotions on the wheel of human emotions. <laughs> like if it doesn't make me do anything other than feel bad and sad, then I'm going to have more trouble paying attention to the cool, like structural stuff mm. you're trying to do. Sure. Or, or the plot stuff you're trying to do. Not that this book is super plot heavy. I mean, it's the plot is a big part of it, but it's no. not. Yeah. But, but uh, anyway, most... it's, I, I'd struggled with this one a little bit. Sure. There was a chapter in it that you said would make me mad that I correctly identified. Yeah, I can't wait to talk about it. I didn't. I was worried that I wasn't going to know which one you meant, and then instantly I knew which one you meant. <laughs> well, we've but never. It, longtime listeners will know that I will. I sometimes struggle with like more writerly, mm. li- capital L literature books, yeah. and this is one of them. And so I'm going to do my best. But I believe in you, bud. Yeah, that's why we do the show together. Mm-hmm. Rather than alone, what well, that, oh, that show would be would a bad, bad podcast. <laughs> <laughs> We've never talked about William Faulkner before on this show, other than like maybe referencing some him somewhere else, right? Yeah, here's some stuff I know about him. Uh, he added the U to his own name, yeah, himself. Yeah, later. he did. And he also said that he wrote "As I Lay Dying" in six weeks and didn't change a word. And then there's a little like scribble at the back of this book about like its history where it's like no he he wrote it in like eight weeks but he definitely revised (laughs) (laughs) yeah he was revised and edited like a book was he the the story goes is that he was writing it on like the night shift for whatever power plant job he had and he was writing it like on on a wheelbarrow from midnight to 4 a.m or something like any good modernist work it's a fever dream (laughs) He was an author who published a lot, but didn't become very like well regarded or, or popular until a little bit later in yeah. his life. I feel like in the forties, like people started singing his praises and it brought uh, attention to his work. But he was better known as like a writer of the American South, like yeah, of no like his his footprint wasn't much bigger than that until. Until like a couple decades before he died. Yes, that's true. Um, so I have some. That's what I know. I have some specifics on that that I can point out. But he was wonderful. Born in 1897, New Albany, Mississippi. He died in 1962. His father was wound up being a business manager at the University of Mississippi. Uh, his mother and grandmother are credited for instilling in him a love of reading. Um, his works feature like the history of the South in its. Mm, uh, and so there's a lot of discussion of the Confederacy, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, I think there are, there are books later, like Absalom, Absalom, yeah. I think, that engage with... It more directly, right? Racism yeah. in the South a little more directly than this. Mm-hmm. Like, in this, we see a couple of black characters, and one character makes a couple of, like, pretty racist observations sure. once, but it's not, like, directly interface yeah. with a whole lot. Yeah. Um, 
but he had ancestors in the Confederacy, of course, and it's something that he wrestled with. Um, in 1918, he travels north for the first time. He goes to Yale with his buddy Phil Stone, um, who I think That's encouraged him to be a writer. And then he went off and joined the Canadian Royal Air Force. Um, he never saw active service, though apparently may have told some false war stories. And then yeah, he's only up in Canada because the U.S. Army wouldn't take him. Yes, right? like he wasn't tall enough or something, something. like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then yeah, he had come back and put a U in his name. It may it might have been a printing error, but that's the kind of thing. That's a choice that you make. It could have stayed a printing error. William. That's Bill. not the book that I have. Just says he later added the U to the family name himself. So oh. there was an active choice made at some point, according okay. to this copy of As sure. I Lay Dying. Um, his first novel was written in 1925. I think that's 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 might be Soldier's Pay. I could be wrong. Um, he was living in New Orleans in 1926. He was moving from poetry to prose. Yeah, it's, uh, Soldier's Pay. Yeah, thank you. Um, and then Mosquitoes was the second novel, and <laughs> okay. then the Flags third novel, the dust? Flags in the Dust, also got rejected a whole bunch and oh. didn't get published in its original form until after he died. That one was shortened and published as Sartoris first, and that was the first one set in Yakta, Patofa County, um, which is his made-up. Decay Dairy Maine. Southern, yeah. It's his own little. Yeah, it is his Daring Maine. Um, where he uh, has, you know, gets to explore parts of the places where he grew up, but in a but in a fictional version of it, just so that he can control it a little bit more. Um, I wanted to shout out that he lived for a period of time at six twenty four Pirates Alley in New Orleans. There's a bookstore now called Faulkner House Books. You and I have been there. It's a cool spot. Mm-hmm. Um, Which one was that? Was that the like the sort of airy, cool one, or was it the cluttered used one no it was the airy cool one where there's okay. the woman who runs it you can actually now you can like write her and ask her to recommend you books and she'll Ooh. you know mail you books and stuff not yeah, the one I where bought. i read a bunch of weird crazy cat comics <laughs> that one <laughs> um, yeah i bought I, at that store i bought my as yet unborn child a copy of yes, madeline i remember that yeah yeah um in 19- like, one of the first things that i bought for him i think probably that was on the trip Memories. where he was coming and you were like i gotta i, I gotta trip. i gotta do this while i can and boy did i was that prescient <laughs> in a bunch of different ways uh, uh, uh 1929 he got married to estelle oldham he had dated her as a teenager and then he would go on to have some extramarital affairs faulkner um 1930, he publishes As I Lay Dying. Like many of his early works, it did not sell particularly well. Um, You were mentioning, Andrew, he kind of found his audience after World War II. Um, There's a long article called William Faulkner's Demons from Casey Sepp in The New Yorker from 2020 that is partially an article about Faulkner and partially a review of a book by Michael Gora uh, that talks about a lot of different things. But in that one, they talk about this guy, Malcolm Cowley, who had published The Portable Faulkner in 1946 that puts all of his works, like a mix of short stories and novels, in chronological order, not publication order. I guess like a C.S. Lewis okay. sort of thing. Okay. Um, and that was where a lot of people found him. 
you know, now that you're, it's post-World War II, you've got boomers, you know, or I guess the silent generation buying books for their boomers. I don't really know how that works, uh, generations, <laughs> but... The uh, boomers are being bored. Yes. People are booming the boom them happening. into Sorry. the world, yeah. yeah. Um, he did, in the 1930s, he tried to get a screenplay published for, or like taken up for light in August, and instead he got hired as a screenwriter and worked on like 50 films didn't really love it, but he got paid. Um, he won the National Book Award twice in the 50s. He won the Nobel Prize in 1949. Um, he was a writer in residence at U of Virginia in the late 50s. And then uh, he died in 1962 uh, after a fall. Um, some thrombosis took him out. Uh, yeah, that's it. He's got a lot of other books. Andrew mentioned Absalom, Absalom. We mentioned Sound and the Fury. Uh, Light in August, Go Down Moses. Uh, a Rose for Emily is a short story I remember reading in that same English class. A lot of stuff, you know, that the guy wrote. 14 or 15 of his novels were set in Yakna Batafa County. Do you have any, like, stylistic table setting to do before we take a break? Like, I have a what? few. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to do that? Like, yeah. tell, tell me, what, what do people need to know about... William Faulkner's like, writing style and what he brings to the genre before we have a talk about this book that is extremely William Faulkner. <laughs> he told the Paris Review, quote, in 1956, I'm a failed poet. Maybe every novelist wants to write poetry first, finds he can't, and then tries the short story, which is the most demanding form after poetry. And after failing at that, only then does he take up novel writing. His earlier works were, as I have read about pretty conventional or at least started kind of conventional and then he leans into the modernist james joycey virginia wolf e stream of consciousness writing if you've ever read one of his bigger books and i'm sure there are sections in this book that have it too he just will have a paragraph go for days just a mm -hmm. big long one maybe it's just one sentence who knows um but he is kind of maximalist with his prose in a way that he is trying to depict internality in a way but not in a literal way and as you alluded to this book has some tricky structural stuff going on that i think is a little bit more adventurous than as what i recall from reading absalom absalom in college um but it is like lots of run-on sentences lots of just big loping passages that you're trying to find the through line of it's challenging on purpose. Um, what is, uh, what does he also say? Cause oh. you're not, yeah. Like part of the challenge of this book is like, I'm not always sure what's happening. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And that, that's the, it, that can be a, you know, there's a lot of TV happening right now where that, that sense of disorientation seems to be the point. Right, where it's like, I don't know what order I'm watching things in. I don't know which characters I'm supposed to invest in. And Faulkner is doing that in a way more like, you know, highbrow literary way, I think, than a pulpy way. Um, but it is still like, what can we accomplish with perspective, with changes in voice, with, uh, you know, the opposite of what Hemingway is doing, really, sure. when you boil mm -hmm. like in terms of contemporaries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think that's kind of the table setting that I would do. Um, and I think it's that's the type of thing that comes up when you read 
any essay by someone who really loves Faulkner, they're like, I didn't know books could do this. I didn't know that you could be this kind of purposefully messy with it. Um, and it seems to break a lot of rules on purpose. I'm sure that sure. there are internal rules that Faulkner was using. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's kind of the table setting I would do for this book in particular because I want you cool. to tell me how it works. All right. Cool. Table set. Get the food. Okay. But first a break. Bye. Okay, bye. Craig, today we're reading As I Lay Dying, but you know what doesn't have to lay dying? What? Is your monthly budget. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Tell me more. It doesn't. I want to tell you about our sponsor this week, Truebill. Truebill is a new app that helps you identify and stop paying for subscriptions you don't need, want, or simply forgot about. On average, people save up to $720 a year with Truebill. Because companies make subscriptions hard to cancel, Truebill makes it incredibly simple. Just link your accounts and Truebill will cancel your unwanted subscriptions in one tap. And your Truebill concierge is there when you need them to cancel unwanted subscriptions so you don't have to. Mm. So yeah, you subscribe to seven TV services. You're like, I don't have any money to go to town and buy myself teeth. Yes, true. Uh, and Truebill will look at all the ones that you're subscribed to and will help you, you know, will help you cancel them and get out of there. So don't fall for subscription scams. Start canceling today at Truebill.com slash overdue. Go right now. Truebill.com slash overdue. It could save you thousands of dollars a year. Truebill.com slash overdue. Andrew, this week's show is also brought to you by one of our Patreon supporters, Kate, who wanted to plug the All Things Cozy podcast. Andrew, are you searching for a podcast to help you relax and focus on the good things in life? Boy, that does seem like a thing that dispositionally I would I would be able to use, doesn't it? Are you craving a community of kind people to discuss recipes, book recs, TVs, movies with the spirit of a close friend? That sounds very nice, yes. All Things Cozy is the podcast to float your cozy boat. Hosts <laughs> Matt and Jillian cover warm and, invi- and comforting topics every other Sunday, from episodes on calming crafts to cozy author interviews. It's always guaranteed to soothe and delight. Every episode also features soothing sound music recommendations and a scented candle review to light your way to the homiest aromas on the market. Treat yourself and tune in wherever you get your podcast or visit allthingscozypodcast.com. Okay, Andrew, I'm laying here. I'm dying here. <laughs> Tell me more. I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> uh, so do you want to first, uh, let's talk about who's laying there dying. Please. Who is I? Is it, it's Addie Bundren. Okay. Who is the matriarch of this family. Sure. The Bundren family, I presume. The Bundren family. Okay. Uh, wife of Ants. Is that how you pronounce his I name? I think so. Yeah, Ants. And mother of a bunch of children, including okay. If I let me know if I miss one. You got Cash. You have Jewel. You have Daryl. You have Dewey Dell, who I keep trying to call Daisy Duck in my mind. <laughs> sure. And you got Vardaman. Vardaman, yes. Who I don't know. Like what? What kind of a name is? Is this supposed to be like Vitamin? <laughs> what Vardaman. kind of a name is Vardaman? Have I'm, you thought about this? I'm. There's a. There was a. Okay, the governor of Mississippi from 1904 to 1908, his last name was Vardaman. Oh, so they and just I really love this governor. I don't think he was a good guy. Okay. 
I guess that would track a little with Vardaman. I don't think any of these people are particularly good people. I think James K. Vardaman might have been an explicitly bad guy. Mm-hmm. Just want to put that out there. Interesting. Okay. All right. But, well, maybe we'll talk about a little bit so more I, about I, Faulkner there. But yes, okay, sure. I think that's everybody. I think that's most of the Bundrens, um, not you know Ted Bundren. That, no, that's not anything. <laughs> Continue. Addie Bundren is is laying there dying to the sounds of her son Cash, who's a carpenter, uh, just like making the coffin that she's going to lay in after okay. she's dead. Sure. And you are getting all of this through, you know, that each chapter jumps to a different character's point of view. Each character has a separate voice. Those voices have varying levels of like relationship to the English language as, as you and I understand it. <laughs> sure. I think that's the um, point. But, there, but there's some, you know, there, there's some vernacular stuff. Okay. Like yep. clearly it's just like trying to capture a, a voice and a time and a place. And then there's some stuff where it's just kind of like running on and repeating itself over and over again in a way that is, as you mentioned, maybe supposed to be a little stream of consciousness-y. But yeah. okay. the consciousness that would stream like that i feel like is <laughs> i don't know it's it's a weird one yeah sure there was something in there's a piece uh, on the conversation.com by uh sounds like a good place to have a conversation yes by beth daly uh who talks about how the um sometimes the vo- oh, this is by sarah gleason white excuse me um some of the voices maybe don't match the person like sometimes vardaman's voice is like really florid and uh, like literary and you're like you're seven and what are you talking about vardaman is supposed to be seven or eight yeah (laughs) he's not a he's not an old boy but he says stuff is like it is as though the dark were resolving him out of his integrity into an unrelated scattering of components if an eight-year-old said that to me i'd leave the planet. Yeah, myself. I, I would leave, leave my the country. I would go away <laughs> forever. Okay, so they're making this casket for Addie, and everybody everybody's talking about it in their own heads or something. Yeah, everybody's kind of dealing with it or not dealing with it in their own way, but we also know that every family member has also has their own stuff going on. Yeah. Um, Cash broke his leg. Okay. Uh, Jewel doesn't like his mom very much even though she loved him very much mm, okay and also he loves this horse that he oh, bought with right. money that he earned like working overnight somewhere for I months and months god that jewel had a horse uh dewey dell is pregnant by oh. a farmhand who okay. is not who she's not married to mm. uh darl so he it is revealed over the course of time. I don't remember exactly when it first comes up. Like he fought in World War One, and he's back, and he's like simultaneously, like the best of them, but also maybe the least stable of them mentally. Yes. Okay, like yes. people, he just kind of like looks off into the distance and talks a little funny, and people just he makes people a little uncomfortable. Yeah, mm-hmm. 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 but he also seems to in a couple of places have the most like emotionally 
reasonable response to yeah. a lot, okay, sure. to a lot of the stuff that happens. Vardaman's just like a weird little weirdo who's exists only to be weird and let Faulkner be weird. I hate Vardaman. Weirdman, more and more like Ants also is bad. Ants is the pits. Is he, he just sucks. a bad guy? He is the worst guy. Okay. Great. He is every he doesn't do any work he convinces everybody in his entire life just to give him stuff and to make them feel bad if they don't give him stuff and he that attitude extends to all of his children and he's just a bad bad guy and okay the novel ends with him being a bad guy great yes like he, an explicitly he, bad guy yes i do recall that we learned that he is very bad at the end there's a point so there's a point in this everybody is so rock stupid in this book too every, <laughs> So cat as they so what happens? Addie dies. She gets thrown in this coffin. Vardaman <laughs> drills holes into the front of the coffin and drills holes into her face because he's a little idiot creep. Oh god! And then they all. <laughs> I just, and I then just, my brain, my sixteen-year-old brain is like, "This is in a book." Like I think yeah. that was my response at the time. What is he it's doing? Like, what is this? What is happening? Okay. And Ants, for once in his life, has decided to follow through on something. Addie wanted to be buried in town, like with where her people had come from. Sure. And Ants has decided, you know, that this is going to be a, a thing that they that they all go and do together, even though it's going to be a little difficult. So the, this is the original the rain, Little the, Miss Sunshine, is what you're saying. That we're all gonna, I the guess. family's gonna go together to honor what one of them wants. Sure, yeah, yeah. it's Little uh-huh. Miss Sunshine, except if Steve Carell is dead in a box in a trunk the whole time. I mean, there isn't there a body in the back of the car? I don't. I, I, I've not watched Little Miss Sunshine in a long time. <laughs> okay, sorry, I didn't realize that this was gonna click for me so bad. Continue. No, well, I mean, the book that it reminded me of a little bit. And this is one I haven't read since I was in high school, but Grapes of Wrath. Yeah, you said which that. Which is also about a poor family mm-hmm. struggling to get by and like frequently making their own circumstances worse with bad decisions that they make. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Unfortunately, I don't have like a ton of empathy for any of these people, which is too bad. <laughs> but I think I, I blame William Faulkner for that more than I blame them. Me or them. Okay. Interesting <laughs> point. Okay, sure. Uh, okay, so Darl, I find sympathetic. Cash, yeah. I find sympathetic. Jewel, I don't know. He's got stuff going on. Okay. Uh, Dewey Dell's plight, I find very sympathetic. I just, I mostly hate Ants as a person, and I hate Vardaman as a perspective. <laughs> and that, and... That was my big, that's my, those are my two biggest issues with the book, I think. Okay, sure, is that Ants and Vardaman are there. Yeah. For any of and them. Ants, and Ants is just being a a bad guy who yeah. is making everybody's life around him worse, and Vardaman is supposed to be a child, but is really just this weird elder god who's gone half mad with something and doesn't know how to relate to anybody. I, and maybe this is an accurate description of eight-year-olds. I don't know. I don't have an eight-year-old yet. <laughs> Woof. So, <laughs> I what I love about this is that I am I can picture the person who loves this book listening to you and just being like, yeah, with like the sicko meme like is their face and they're like, yes, exactly. <laughs> Vardaman is an elder god and ants is garbage. 
yes, <laughs> I love this is why I'm here for. Put the drill in her eyes. Let's go. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, I hope I hope that that's the response. I hope that like that is book. what every As I Lay Dying album is about. <laughs> sure. <laughs> okay, so uh, what do they do? They're going to go to Jackson? Uh, so, yeah, Addie dies, and the name of the town is Jefferson. Jefferson, excuse me. Jackson is, I think, a um, real town in Mississippi. Boy, the page that I have chosen to load to help me stay on track plot-wise is just festooned with malware and pop-ups. Oh, no. So <laughs> thank you, sparknotes.com. They're so gonna, Addie dies. She's laying there dying. They're going to take her where? Peop- they're going to take her to Jefferson. Okay. And sure, her last word is to like sit up and look at Cash and to yell his name as he's like, building this coffin for her and then she keels over and she's dead. So they're going to take her body to Jefferson because Ants said that he would. Okay. And so the whole family gets, you know, loads up onto the wagon. They got a couple mules. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jules got his horse that he likes and we're going to go to Jefferson. But the wrinkle in this is that the rains have come through. It's the rainy season and the river nearby is very, very high and has like washed out or flooded the bridges that are there and the, and most of the, the fords. So it's just going to be a really tough time to cross this river to get into town right now. Okay. Um, I imagine, I remember this river fording being bad, like being particularly bad. Yeah, pretty bad. And so like undeterred by all of this bad stuff that's happening, they, they all decide to cross this river um, and it goes pretty badly. Like the, the mules who are pulling the wagon die. Uh, they almost lose the coffin. Cash breaks his like re breaks his broken leg. And they, I mean, they all make it a- across, but they don't have mules anymore. And it's just a very bad situation. Okay. So this all leads to a series of frustrating events. Like here's the thing about the book that frustrates me the most is cash has like broken his leg, right? Yeah. And so they are they go to some sm- small like town or village or something. It's a place that's big enough to have like a pharmacist who can tell Dewey Dell who that he's not going to give her uh the drugs that she needs to uh, abort her pregnancy. Yeah. Uh but yeah, they buy concrete and then they mix up the concrete and then they pour it over Cash's leg to help with the the break. And because it's concrete, it dries and cuts off the circulation to his leg and just makes everything way worse. But because Cash is so stoic and thick-headed, he doesn't tell anybody that he's in any kind of pain. He just insists that he's fine, and then you just keep pouring water over it, and it's fine. Whose decision was that? I think it was Ants who decided to do it. Uh, That's (laughs) stupid. Yeah, that's dumb. People, and are, so they people conti- are in a bad way, it seems. I get and so they keep going in town. They stop off at this farm. Darl is like the, the smell of his mother's body, which has been dead for like eight days at this point, is really getting to him. And he decides he's going to burn down the barn that they are in in the hopes that it will take the coffin with it and they can just give up on this horrible quest. You know? <laughs> Darl? Maybe. And it does, yeah, and this this is the most relatable thing that happens in the entire book is when <laughs> Darl tries to burn the premise to the ground. Uh, so that doesn't work. Uh-huh. But 
Daryl does get spotted by uh, by Dewey Dell, I think, who then tells on him. Yes, I remember. But, but okay. I, everybody everybody knew it was him, and so instead of like instead of dealing with the legal fallout of this, they just have him declared, you know, mentally unfit or whatever, and he's shipped off to an asylum, and he's just gone. Oh God. That's and he's just gone. He's just and so out they're of the in book. town, and now Dewey Dell's gone to another pharmacist to try and get abortion meds, and the doctor gives her talcum powder in pills, and then has sex with her. Yeah. Instead of helping. Yeah. And Vardaman is eating bananas, and Cash is like goes to a doctor and has the concrete broken off his leg, and gets yelled at by the doctor, and it's like you should have thrown your dad in the hole while you were burying your mom because he, this is the only part of the book I really feel like I want to read out loud is this doctor <laughs> reacting to ants because okay because it's just yeah, like he said what he said he says uh, this is Peabody God almighty why didn't ants carry you to the nearest sawmill and stick your leg in the saw that would have cured it then you all could have stuck his head into the saw and cured a whole family <laughs> Okay. So Ansys had to Ansys had to borrow shovels to bury his yeah. dead wife because that's the kind of person that he is. And then at the end of the book, he comes up to his kids with the lady who he borrowed the shovels from and is like, Hey, this is my wife now. We got married. And also I spent Dewey Dell's abortion money on teeth because I needed new teeth. Because he needed new teeth. That's right. The end. What happened to Jewel? Anything? Jewel has a horse. And then uh, Ants tries to sell the horse to get the mules to get them into town. Uh Uh-huh. And Jewel doesn't like it. Well, he wouldn't. He likes his horse. Yeah, he doesn't like it. And then he almost gets into a fight with somebody. But the the only thing on the entire earth that he loves is his horse. And Ants tries to separate him from it. bless Jewel. Yeah, Ants sucks, huh? I really don't like Ants. Yeah. So it is my understanding that certainly with some of the like people like to throw around that this book gets kind of biblical because of like the fire and the flood and obviously mm-hmm. it's like you know it's death and family and well, there's some discussion sta- of of yeah. god and of of addy sort of thinking that she knows sin better than god does and, and loving jewel more than she loves god and like that being part of a thing that brings all this unfortunate stuff onto this family like Addie has had an affair with this minister who is the father of several of the kids oh Um, not not cash and not Darl maybe but definitely Jewel and the rest of them okay say and so we get one chapter from the point of view of this priest who's like all right I'm gonna I'm gonna saddle up I'm gonna go over to the house I'm gonna tell ants what happened and I'm gonna you know I'm gonna get right and then Addie dies, and he's like, well, if God wanted me to tell ants, then he wouldn't have gotten rid of all the evidence, huh? <laughs> That's basically what he what his deal is. Holy crap. For, I did no it's recollection of that guy. It's not that there aren't interests. Like, there's a whole chapter we get from Addie's perspective. I was going to ask about just that. About, yeah, tell me. She, she's talking about... And is this, this, so is this after is, she's dead? This is a while after she has died okay after she has has lain dying Dying, yeah and she's a 
this is a, a the first sentence of her chapter is just is pretty evocative in the afternoon when school was out and the last one had left with his little dirty snuffling nose instead of going home i would go down the hill to the spring where i could be quiet and hate them <laughs> I could just remember how my father used to say that the reason for living was to get ready to stay dead a long time. Whoa. So like, she's got a lot to say. And then the rest of the chapter is about like, I don't know her relationship with her own life and whether she finds it worth living and what having kids like does to your yeah. perception of, of self and how it changes her, uh, her, you know, how she feels about the little snot nosed kids at school that she hates teaching. Hmm. Um, so it's like, it's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And it explains like ants used to be like young and handsome and maybe seem like he had more on the ball than he does. Sure. Well, okay. So yeah, it does track then what you said before is like this, this family has, maybe it's not an easy one to one, but the family has some kind of like original sin thing that then cascades through the rest of them or like marks them for bad stuff to happen is that how like at least somebody in this book understands it yeah i I think you could read it that way yeah okay okay um but you're the you know you're the scholar on this one you wrote the paper about it so i'm kind of gonna lean on you for the more like academic a paper about it i'm sure was it do you have it somewhere you should have brought it no it was probably a page and a half it was probably (laughs) in this i don't know if i wrote a full theme about as i lay dying i'm sure i was supposed to who knows if i did i know i wrote a crap on it um a critical reading analysis piece (laughs) That were I'm glad you spelled that out. That were you know one and a half pages long, and they were always like a really tight prompt that you had to you know write a f- f- compelling five paragraph essay about. Uh, and they were usually assigned like twice a week. That class was, yeah. I think all those died on some old like 386 PC that I had. Is that a type okay. of PC? Yeah. Great. Got it in one. Um, yeah. Would have been a little old by the time you were in eleventh grade, but oh yeah, it was not a. It was for nothing else other than writing papers at six in the morning on the day they were due. That's what okay. It was that might all right. Yeah. That's I think that's all three eighty six would have been able to handle in <laughs> in the early two thousands. Yeah, tell me about our favorite chapter, Andrew, in the book. Tell <sighs> me, a, I would. Just, it's one of the things people know about this book. I, and if they don't know it, they should. We provide a service here on this podcast so that if someone hears of the band, they can say, oh, did you know that band is based on a book? And did you know this one famous line from that book is? So Vardaman, uh-huh. who, as you might recall, is a dead-eyed, <laughs> malicious little... He's a Funko Pop. God. Uh, has, at the same time as his mother is dying caught a fish yeah and so he decides in his godforsaken mind to associate the two things yeah and to say my mother is a fish it's one whole chapter. and this is the text of the chapter is my mother is a fish that's the whole chapter and so vardaman gets mad when i think it's dewey dell kills the it cuts up the fish to cook it to eat it because it's mom yeah but then the rest of the time, Vardaman's just like, my my mother is a 
a fish and his mother is a horse and Darl's my brother and my mother is a fish and it just repeats oh, itself goes, over and over again. Yeah, like, Come full on, like, um, like Fight Club at that point. I guess. I am Jim something or other, whatever that is. My mother is a fish. Yeah. Um, also, she, you know, she goes in the river. She floats in the river. She almost, they almost lose her in the river. Why do you want to talk to me about this fish chapter? What just, do you like about the fish chapter? I like about the fish. I like that the fish chapter exists because it is a very easy reference point for how bizarre these POVs can be relative to one another. And like structurally, what, he's got 15 or more characters and like pushing 60 different chapters. And some of them are. Some of them are like big, a guy talks for a while chapters, and some of them are more poetic. And this, like, a kid says a weird thing, and then the next thing happens, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you don't get that disorienting what is actually happening in this book feeling that you described earlier if it can't do stuff like my mother is a fish. If it if it is more straightforward then it's just a f- sad family took a coffin to a sad town and they they were sad along the way. Yeah, I, which like, was my high level summary of the entire I think there's book. a yeah, I think there's a reason what I've pulled some quote from um this was maybe um I I do I think it's important to put that scaffolding up early yeah. and then we can you know, I talk about how much I hated ants and how much I didn't like Vardaman, and I can go through and talk about how I find some of the other characters sympathetic in some ways. But my just my main response to the book is that it was kind of a slog, and you do have to dig for things to, I don't know, have fun with about it, well, which is just not where my brain is right now. Yeah, and what I think that the reason that it is still a thing that people would be interested to hear us talk about, that people would be interested to maybe go back and read, is not the emotional slog of it. It is the shifting perspective. It is the, uh, like, lyrical quality of it. Mm-hmm. There are other books that do the uh, decaying Southern family thing. And Literally they might... decaying yeah. in a coffin. Uh-huh. <laughs> There And there are plenty of books that do that. It is not unique in that it is covering that material. I think it is unique in how Faulkner chose to cover that material. And, that, you know, sure. it, whether or not that resonates with the reader, you know, we've talked about it's similar to like I vibed with most of House of Leaves and most of that was because of how the structure added the the spooky effect but there's also whole parts of that book that suck. And that guy, mm-hmm. the guy writing about the book inside of the book sucks. Like it's the part where it's like a spooky house that is cool. You know, <laughs> um, I guess the other thing that I just want to ask you about Andrew. So like I found this, uh, this essay I referenced earlier, Faulkner's demons um, is about this book that Michael Gore wrote called the saddest words, Faulkner, William Faulkner's civil war. And it really dives into kind of the response from people like W.B. Du Bois and uh, James Baldwin who were like, Faulkner's kind of a racist and like sure. has said a bunch of stuff in his letters and he's said weird stuff about desegregation in interviews 
and then this guy Gora's book then po- is arguing that inside of Faulkner's fiction, he is doing a lot to de- to portray this like really kind of, for lack of a better word, like sick like generations of people removed from the civil war who have not atoned for what has happened and mm-hmm. it's like eating the society from the inside and i don't know we you talked about how that's not front and center in this book but like it is said in this fictional universe that he created that he could use to explore these themes like what about or what portrait of this era of the south did you get from this book if that, if that's something that came to you at all yeah, I mean, it's overwhelmingly just like the the poverty of it and the the I don't know, like I I am maybe bringing this in from other like Southern fiction sure. that we've yeah. written, but I know that there was like I'm, I'm thinking of Gone with the Wind a little bit, maybe where there were spots where it talked about tension between poor whites and blacks. Sure. In the South at the time. Yeah. Um, And thinking about these poor whites who are struggling and impoverished and don't have like much to their name, but also they weren't, they and their like immediate ancestors weren't somebody's property at any point. Yeah. And they're still allowed to sort of just, wander around and exist in the world. And like, they bring a stinky coffin into town and everybody gives them weird looks, but nobody like lynches them. Yeah. And so that, that is maybe that's what comes to mind like immediately, but I don't know how much the book is, is exploring that on purpose, you know? Yeah, no, it seems like it's more just steeped in that era of the South and what, Faulkner saw it as I do I want to read this passage from because you just brought up uh that book what is it called Gone with the Wind yeah thank you um this passage from the New Yorker article um Faulkner this is the author of the article Casey Sepp writing um Faulkner was unwilling in his own life to adequately acknowledge the evils of slavery and segregation, but he did so with savage thoroughness in his fiction. Uh, He was a Hieronymus Bosch of prose. That's a thing you could say. Um, Though much historical fiction is escapist, Faulkner's is brutalizing, depicting a South debased first by degeneracy and then by the refusal to atone for it. Uh, In 1936, the same year that Margaret Mitchell offered the world a romance between Rhett Butler and Scarlett O'Hara, Faulkner published a story of rape and incest and racist terror. Um, Absalom, Absalom sold around 10,000 copies. Gone with the Wind sold more than a million and won the Pulitzer Prize. (laughs) So that is another, just like, to your point about like, is this a book that you had a good time, like just reading that is another thing to consider in terms of like its legacy and like why it does and doesn't resonate with people, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it's the gone with the wind comparison is interesting because my memory of our gone with the wind conversation is like, this is a really sort of staggering work that is laundering a bunch of yeah. viewpoints and, and historical interpretations and like fiction that I find pretty abhorrent. Uh-huh. 
And, it, you know, and, and there are differences too. like you're in, in Gone with the Wind, you are able to romanticize it a bit because you're experiencing it through the eyes of like the aristocracy and not through. Yeah. Like Gone with the yeah. Wind through the eyes of poor whites probably is a different book. Yeah. Which is. Um, yeah, for sure. But then, yeah, but this isn't like it is is doing a lot of stylistically interesting stuff. It's just it's being willfully difficult about it. Yeah. Yeah. In a in a way that's not as I don't know. It's not as inviting. It's not as I'm I'm I'm, I don't know. I'm rambling. No, no, you're right. We talked about that with other modernist and postmodern works that we've read on the show where it's like. Is the work it takes to read the book something you are a up for in in the moment when you're reading it, and b is it a thing that you're generally interested in or not? You know. Yeah, it's and it's and I am I probably should apologize to anybody who loves as I lay dying and is like not finding my <laughs> response to it is funny or interesting. Like, yeah, it's it's just it is not the kind of book that I gravitate toward it is the kind of book that i still find sort of homeworky and that i still mm. that is still work for me to to ingest and enjoy and i think the book is like owning that i think it's trying to be yeah. complex and and layered in a way that i can respect but i i didn't have a great time with it i think you're yeah but that's what i have found really interesting about your perspective on it is that like you're coming by your reaction to the work pretty honestly you're taking it in as much faith as you can give it and it is saying i am a difficult mean book like Mm -hmm. wrestle with me it is Mm -hmm. we've we've read books that are trying to be like plotty and character focused and it's like hard to focus on it's hard to tell what the author wants or it's kind of clumsy and leaves a lot of things there to distract you when it's clear that the author probably should have just gone back and done another pass or something. This doesn't feel in my recollection, this book isn't that it is definitely the versionist version of itself. It's, it is what it is trying to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, But like the, the gist, I didn't clip any specific three, three star good reviews for this show, but I did just skim over them to get the gist because I had suspected they would be pretty much where I am. It's just like, I respect this book. It's doing some neat stuff. The characters are extremely memorable. Yeah, sure. But boy, it's rough and sad. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just not everybody's like cup of tea, I guess. It's not a beach read. You could read it on a beach. <laughs> It might be better to just be able to like put the book down and see like sunshine and happiness around you, huh? Than it was to for me to like put it down and see all the boxes and the bare walls in my bummer of a house that I have to live in for another month. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. that's different. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But then you're that guy on the beach reading as I lay dying, and people have to see you. I guess you could have a Kindle. I do it on Kindle. You know, that's true. That's true. I don't don't judge people for their beach reads one way or the other, unless they're reading like you know, some racist. I guess. Yeah, that would be that would. Be. But but what I mean is just like you can read House of Leaves or Fifty Shades of Grey on the beach. That's true. You could, and just like let the beach be for everybody. Hey, let the beach be for everybody. Yeah, let it beach for everybody. Mm. Too far. <laughs> Andrew, thanks for telling me about this book. 
You're welcome. Sorry. <laughs> I I would honor. I just feel like I have to apologize for not liking a book because this is the way that we get emails for years and years about how we didn't cover Cormac McCarthy right or whatever. I think we like, covered this book right, though. I think we talked I, about why people like it and we talked about what's still tough about it, which is like. It's a tough book about tough stuff, and you sometimes you can be up for one or the other of those things, but mixed together, that's yeah. a tough. That's a strong cocktail, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. I, I wish I'd thought of that thing twenty minutes ago because I think it's pretty smart. What I just <laughs> said. Sure. <laughs> you fix it in post. Fix it in post. Yeah. If you. Yeah. Okay. Um, also, the title is taken from Agamemnon in the Odyssey. As they lay dying, the woman with the dog's eyes would not close my eyes as I descended into Hades. In case anybody was going to be pedantic about where the title came from, just wanted to let you know. Um, but it's still based on a metal band. Thanks for telling me about it, Andrew. If you want to tell us your favorite As I Lay Dying song and about if do they have guitar solos? I don't know. Tell me about it. Send us an email at overduepod at gmail.com. Hit us up on Facebook and Twitter with your favorite As I Lay Dying music videos at overduepod. Thanks to folks who reached out to us in the past week, including Chris, Bridget, Rebecca, Rachel, Juliana, Alex, Todd, Martha, Kate, Nancy, Max, and many more. Thanks to Nick Lorandis, who composed our theme music and who I would ask to compose theme music if I had to go on a journey as bad as this one. It would probably cheer me up. Andrew, folks who want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have links to the books that we have read and are going to read. Uh, what are you reading next? What are we reading next week? We are reading The Secret Lives of Church Ladies with our guest, Glory Edom from Well Read Black Girl. We recorded cool. it. A while ago, and I'm excited yeah. for you to hear it. Yeah, it was a good conversation, fun conversation. Uh, we also have a Patreon page, patreon.com slash overduepod. Uh, late last week, we published an episode with some updates on that. Uh, all good news. Yeah. Uh, including the start of our new long read project that's following up Don Quixote, which we are just wrapping up on. Uh, the new one's called Goosebumps. It's going to be a read through of eight great Goosebumps books by. Jovial Bob Stein himself. Yep. The to first, take us from now till Spooktober. The first one is Welcome to Dead House. Uh, those will pop up on our Patreon feed for the patrons who get them early, and then everyone else will get them on the main feed. You can still read along with us. I got to make a spooky graphic for the book so you know which ones we're reading. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a lot of folks uh, join us in the Patreon Discord over the last week after the update, and we've been chatting about all, cool, all sorts of cool stuff in there. Patreon.com slash overdupod. Find out more information. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening to our, to our podcast. And until we, I don't know, ford a river with your corpse next week, try to be happy. This podcast is a fish. That was a HeadGum Podcast.